This podcast is part of the Podcast Arcade Network. Good day and welcome to the Goad Kicker Podcast. I am your host, Carl D. Smith. Welcome back to the Goat Kicker Podcast, episode 31. Hope everyone's doing well as December marches on. It, you know, there's not a lot of time between now and Christmas, and I have two kids, and I have bought neither of them their quote-unquote big gift. They get harder to buy for, uh, not because they are less vocal about what they want, it's just they're less realistic about what they want. And, as it turns out, and I won't belabor this on this particular episode, but life has gotten a lot more expensive. I have found it less comfortable to live week to week. Uh, Every five years, I feel like we're downgrading instead of upgrading. Um, And it it makes things rough at Christmas time. I remember kind of the situation I was in uh, as a new graduate a new pharmacist, trying to figure out this whole steady income, full-time job, routine, new homeowner. And money wasn't, like, just pouring out of my pockets, but I could make a lot of irresponsible purchases, and it wouldn't hurt the bottom line at home. And when Christmas came, I could go bananas and buy a bunch of stuff for my kid he didn't need or even know what it was or appreciate or want necessarily. And I'd be angry about it maybe into the next season, but that money was there. At that time, Matt Beckner, my friend and I, uh, we ran, um, that's two people, not three, not Matt Beckner, comma, my friend, comma, and I. It's Matt Beckner, my best friend in the world, comma, and I, uh, ran a little charity. And we were helping other people have decent Christmases and take care of needs that weren't related to holidays. And towards the end of it, a lot of it was coming out of our pockets. If we helped a, a person have uh, some repair on their vehicle, we needed to put an alternator in or something, you know, ultimately it was us that paid for it. Um, if someone needed tires on their car, we ended up finding a way to get it paid for. Um, we didn't have a lot of luck with the community always pitching in, even the ones who were active or supportive of our idea. The whole idea of our charity was is to help alleviate some need for folks by the many chipping in to take the burden off. Someone has little infants and money's got tight, we can help with diapers. In theory, we can help with diapers because we know 30 people who think what we're doing is a good idea that can probably spare 
a box of diapers once a month when they go to do their shopping. And we can gather these up and if you have 30 people buying 30 boxes of diapers over the course of a month, that's a lot of diapers, and, uh, and it takes the burden off of the person who needs them. We tried to operate as a zero cash. Uh, we didn't want cash. We wanted people, if they felt like they just needed to do something to, to be involved but didn't want to meet a specific need as we posted it, um, we asked that they gave us gift cards for gas or for groceries, something specific that we could pass along. And those worked okay. But the, mo- the, the, the point of what I'm getting at here is that towards the end, um, involvement was down. People's pocketbooks were getting tighter, ours included. Matt and I have both, uh, I don't want to speak for him or, or you know speak out of school, but him and I have both taken jobs that were a considerable step back in pay. And a tremendous amount of that was coming out of our own pocket. We both still do things on our own, uh, just not as Samaritan Finder the uh, charity any longer but the money was there when I started Samaritan Finder to do these things now if I get involved with helping anybody out which I try to do still it comes at a little bit more of a sacrifice it's interesting how life is it's it's a constant reminder that uh, things were never, um, you know, set in stone. I, we had this myth that things were always going to be a certain way, that our parents were going to teach us how to navigate life, and life would be uh, predictable as long as we followed those rules. We'd look at inspiration of the older generations and see how granddad did things. Maybe granddad didn't have the internet when he was a kid, but he went to college, got out, got a job, had a career, had a family, had a house, bought rental properties so he'd have additional income and build equity so that when he hit his retirement, things would be a little more comfortable. Granddad owns a cabin at the side of a beautiful lake because it was cheaper to buy that summer home than it was to go on expensive trips. They built that house themselves on the weekends. You just don't see a lot of that happening anymore. I look around at the kids that are, you know, uh, younger than I that I interact with or even the people who are my own age and a lot of us are just kind of stressed to the gills financially and we're well educated and we're hard workers we maybe have made some poor choices financially with being involved in uh, these various nerd hobbies and endeavors rather than just socking all of our money into a Folgers can but but you have to have some balm for the stress and irritation that is day-to-day life. 
So things haven't just naturally improved. So a time like Christmas time gets to be a little rough for a lot of us. And so I'd like to just reach out and and say, hang in there. Um, don't overthink uh, it. It's very liberating to have a very small Christmas. You don't have to buy for absolutely everybody. You don't have to buy large things for everybody. Things adds up quick. If you have an office that you... Uh, have somewhere along the line negotiated well we just buy little things for each other we say don't spend more than five or ten bucks that's five or ten bucks you've just lit on fire and thrown away for each person that you've bought for because you're not going to buy anything meaningful you're buying something out of obligation it's going to be a knickknack or a little snack or something like that Just another thing that becomes kipple once the holiday is over. And while it was only five or ten bucks, it was five or ten bucks times however many people you did that for, and that really adds up. It really adds up. Five or ten bucks isn't the five or ten bucks it used to be. It flows out very easily. It comes in just as hard as it did 20 years ago. Funny how that works. But it disappears quicker and gets you less in return. So hang in there. Do yourself a favor and say no. Just put your foot down if you have to. Protect your own bottom line. And know that burying your loved ones in extravagant gifts is uh, is fun. But it's by no means necessary. And just know that you're not the only one out there struggling. You're not the only one out there hoping to get that other payday to fall so that you can get a few more things right before Christmas. There's a lot of us in that same boat. Don't feel shame about it. It's, uh, it's definitely the new normal. It's not great, but it's normal. And lastly, here at Goat Kicker, I'd like to encourage you to just continue uh, focusing on the things that we should. Doing good for others, being mindful of other people's feelings and aspirations in their own situations. If you can bring a little joy into someone's life this month, then... I would think that's more in line with the season than buying someone a $5 coffee mug that says, All Mama Wants is a Quiet Night. Or Silent Night. I guess I ruined the joke. I ruined the joke by being too serious. So hang in there, nerds. It can be a tough month. It seems like there's... Never enough time or money to do December in a comfortable manner. But hang in there. I hope you're all having a great winter so far. And we'll start the show on the other side of this break. I work for uh, a public health organization. 
one that you might be familiar with. It's the Nebraska Regional Poison Control Center. We cover Nebraska, Idaho, and Wyoming, as well as American Samoa and the Federated States of Micronesia. So as you can imagine, we're not exactly bursting at the seams with funding, um, but we do have a pretty nice office. Uh, the organization had moved the year prior to me coming on board, so thankfully I missed out on the headache of moving and setting up uh, the technology and, and the infrastructure and everything needed to keep things rolling. You know, as you can imagine, we're a 24-hour-a-day emergency service. <clears throat> And so uh, it's sort of hard to take breaks in that without everybody pitching in and a lot of hard work and irritation. But the office space that we're currently in, we don't own. And it's housed within a multi-million, if not multi-billion dollar company that's synonymous with Omaha, Nebraska. And as I enter this enormous facility, there are several layers of security, key card doors that I have to have access to. I have a card that gets me into the parking lot and another card that gets me into, you know, the greater concourse of the building itself. And then another card that gets me through the stairwell and another card that gets me into my office itself. There's some financial institutions within our facility that uh, obviously have their own security. Everything is insurance or finances or health care. So as you can imagine, there's a lot of sensitive information. They just can't have people wandering about. And in this day and age, I mean, security is very important. So lately, there's been this issue on one of the doors that we use to access the building where the doors aren't shutting. They're not latching like they should. The building is settled. Uh, humidity and heat and cold have conspired, and uh, they're not latching. Or they're latching too soon. That was a problem I had the other day. <laughs> it drives me nuts. But there's a sign taped up that says, basically, if you use this door, make sure you pull it shut behind you. Make sure it's latching. Make sure it's locking. For the safety of everybody inside, let's make sure that this security measure isn't circumvented because the doors aren't working so hot. And I have two opinions about that. One is, this is a multi-million dollar company that has both a security department that they pay for and a maintenance department. And this isn't the first door-related issue we've had since I've been there in the year that I've been there. But why is it on me, the person who's coming to, to work, the person who gets an hourly wage, to ensure the safety and the security of everybody within the building 
when you have two departments of people that you pay, they could probably figure this thing out. Why isn't it being fixed? Why isn't there the security detail paying extra attention to it? Why isn't it a priority for the maintenance crew? If it's above the abilities of both your overweight 20-something security guards that stand outside and vape in the parking lot and drive around the three-block area as security to manage to watch this point of entry that doesn't lock like you want it to, and if it's above the pay grade and skills of the people you've hired to be facilities maintenance to repair, if they're just going to scratch their head with their wrench and shrug their shoulders like they do about a couple other issues we've had, then at least hire someone else. There's got to be a handyman, a maintenance crew, a construction firm, a security organization, something They can fix something as easy as automated doors that don't latch properly because the doors and the door frames are fighting and not seating like they're supposed to. You might be wondering what this has to do with Goad Kicker. Well, what it has to do is on a bad day when I'm thinking that that's not my business and there's a thousand other solutions for it, There's also a good day where I think, you know what, it's not that big of a deal for me just to pull that shut. They'll fix it eventually. What's the big deal? And you can kind of see the thought process of both those reactions present in so many things we see in nerddom. Look how much longer my rant was about why... I don't think it's my responsibility. Whose responsibility is? Solutions that they could possibly do that don't involve me. I had a wealth of, of, of ideas, didn't I? Or I could just do it and move on with my day and be done with it. Door secure. I'm delayed two seconds. I'm on my way to my job. But on a good day... That works fine. On a bad day, I want to debate it. I want to grump about it. I want to vent about it. I want to write an angry email. I want to mock the marker on printer paper taped to the door. (laughs) There's a lot of issues in nerd culture where I could go either way on. Whether it's a real controversy or not. And on a bad day, I can give you a thousand reasons why something is ridiculous or should be ashamed or should be canceled or is less than something else. And on a good day, I can just shrug it off and say, you know what, it's not that big of a deal really. It's not for me, but not everything has to be. On this episode of Go Kicker, I want to look at a few things 
three stories to stick with our theme. There are things that I could go either way on, depending on my mood. And I won't go into a deep dive of each thing. I'll just mention each thing. I'll mention my pro and my con. And we'll just leave it up for eternal debate. But what I want to point out and what I want to display with these three subjects is that a lot of times the value of something isn't the main contention. The main contention, a lot of times, is our attitude about it. If your opinion of something can change drastically based on your opinion of yourself or how your day is going or how your life is going that morning, then it's tempting to say that your opinion about that thing is not very valid. It doesn't help other people. They're not in your shoes. They don't understand that your girlfriend broke up with you and that song was on the radio, so therefore that band will forever suck and anyone who likes them will suck even harder. It's not a valid criticism. It's based entirely on your own personal point of view and experience and whatever limitations and and boundaries you've put on accepting or enjoying that piece of nerd culture. So let's get into it. Let's find three things, three topics I could go either way on, explain my thought process on both, and open this up to further debate. So do you like the Star Wars prequels? You know, starting with the Phantom Menace and onward from there. Do you enjoy those? Did you like them? Do you pretend they didn't happen? Would you prefer they didn't happen? This is a topic I can go either way on. Uh, One of the things that really bothered me the most about uh, the Star Wars prequels, um, other than the blatant marketing behind them, uh, the choices that were made just to expand the merchandising. Um, it was a story that uh, changed a lot of things that it probably didn't need to change and uh, didn't really serve any one group um, well. There was hyper-nerdy stuff in it, like lengthy discussions about trade embargoes and commerce. And then there was hyper-silly stuff in it, like a little boy with a weird catchphrase that also could build incredible space chariots for space chariot races. What bothered me the most of all this was the fact that they, they changed, as I mentioned, things that they didn't need to change. They made the Force have a foot in reality. Not unlike a Mysteries of the Bible, we'll look at a biblical miracle and explain how it could be a natural phenomenon, a coincidence, a misunderstanding by these idiot ancients that uh, immediately disattributed it to their deity. But at the same time, then they introduced the idea of a forced Jesus. The Anakin is somehow a chosen one. He's a he's a child of promise that's been foretold. 
it's just really bizarre that um, you would both try to downplay and increase the mysticism of the Force at the same time. Then, of course, there's Jar Jar Binks. Everybody's favorite whipping boy. And by the end of the first movie, you're sort of left scratching your head. Was that good? Was that not good? Am I excited to see where this goes? Did I need to see what Darth Vader was as a child? This continues into the second movie, and I'm told into the third, which I still have never seen, where there are moments of interest and moments of uh, baffled uh, offense for longtime Star Wars fans. So how passionate for or against the prequels are you? On one hand, they've sort of quote-unquote ruined Star Wars. By watering down three strong movies that we all had strong emotional ties to with three more movies that were maybe a little less well executed and a little less fantastic. They portray a time in the past in this universe when things were technologically more shiny and advanced because special effects had improved. And the more you try to explain why things have come about, the more it exposes the thin material that Star Wars was made out of to begin with. One of the most important things of of a good science fiction or fantasy story, except for like the highest echelon stuff, is not to think too hard about what's going on around it or before it. It will ruin the fantasy because it will create potholes, not fill them. So for this reason, I found Star Wars prequels to be sort of irritating. When I saw the second one, is that Attack of the Clones? Is that what the second one is? When I saw that one in the theater, I decided I was done. I didn't want to see the third one. I was I was just done with them. And to this day, I, I think I've only watched the second one one more time. But I've seen Phantom Menace several times, and I'll tell you why. Because on some days... I enjoy that movie. If that movie was the first in an entirely new series of movies that come out, I think people's opinion of it would be very different. There's a lot of baffling stuff in it. But at the core of it is a wonderful fantasy story that could have just as easily been an Edgar Rice Burroughs-type fantasy uh, novel. They got adapted to big screen and embellished a little, probably, because that pod racing, let's be honest, is nothing that's going to exist outside of someone wanting to recreate Ben-Hur in space. It didn't really add to the story. The amount of time that we dwelt upon it was a little unequal to what it added back to the mythology 
but for the most part, it's a fantastic science fiction movie. And to be quite honest with you, that last battle between the Gungans and the and the droid army was very thrilling and very satisfying for someone who likes science fiction. Nameless, faceless horde of robots just being destroyed by semi-primitive aliens that we can relate to for some reason. Getting a little redemption, going from the villain of the story to the hero and seeing this goofy, clumsy character become a general. And I'll take it a step further. I actually never really minded Jar Jar Binks. I didn't find him that annoying. I thought he was entertaining. It took some explaining to me to understand why he was seen as racist. And I can see those points, but it didn't naturally occur to me when I was sitting in the theater. I thought he was fun. I thought it was a nice little lighthearted stand-in for someone like an R2-D2 or a C-3PO or a Chewbacca There's always been a little levity with one of the characters, and so why not through Jar Jar Binks? A lot of times my attitude towards the prequel comes related to my mood, and that's sort of the theme that we're talking about today. When I'm negative, when I'm grumpy, I can see why people hate them so much and why they're used uh, deserving of so much ridicule and hate. But on the other hand, they're they're just fine. The the movie was fine. It's entertaining. I've purchased The Phantom Menace, actually, on Amazon before we had Disney Plus and what have you. And I've watched it a few times. It's fun to watch with my kids who don't really care about Star Wars, aren't really invested in it in any way. But if I have it on in the background, they do stop and watch a little bit of it. The beginning is a little slow to start and a little boring for them. But the visual comedy of Jar Jar Binks and and the action of of the droids and uh, this kind of the spectacle of the pod racing, that stuff conveys itself as thrilling, imaginative storytelling to a kid that doesn't have any sort of background with the overall lore. The reveal of Anakin later as uh, a conflicted uh, soul that eventually becomes Darth Vader, it may have paid off a little bit better if the movies had come out in order. Which is an impossibility because nothing was written beyond Star Wars when Star Wars was made. It was only after the fact that he started calling it Episode Four and all that nonsense. But we sort of already knew who and what he became. And so there was like a little thread of that that's working against it already. The biggest spoiler, the biggest thrill of the prequels, we already knew where it was headed. And it was a little less satisfying to actually see it come about. 
So the Star Wars prequels are definitely something I think that, depending on your mood, your opinion can change about them. Uh, There have been essays and videos and documentaries made about how terrible they are. And I've seen arguments to the contrary as well. But at the end of the day, if you're in a good mood, if you're in the right mood, it doesn't bother you. It didn't take anything out of your pocket. It didn't hurt your family directly. Worst case scenario is you just don't watch it. You watch the movies that you still have. Now you could make an argument, and I still think it's not a most valid argument to make as an adult, but you could make an argument how disappointing and and what a tremendous disservice it is that you can no longer watch Star Wars in the format it was in most of your life, that It's been altered and continues to be altered digitally. I think that's a much more valid argument than it is to complain about the prequels. There's other entertainment options. There are numerous outlets for Star Wars love if that particular flavor is not for you. And we're just getting more. We're getting more and more every year. If you don't like the prequels, if you don't like Solo, if you don't like the Marvel comic books, all that's fine. Because there's much more out there. Novels and cartoons and movies. So where do you fall on the Star Wars prequels? And if you're honest with yourself, does your opinion... base itself on the intrinsic qualities of the prequel movies, or is it your own mood and your own attitude? I would argue that most of our opinions on it are based on our mood and attitude, our expectations, not on the movie itself. But midichlorians were pretty stupid, And so was the notion of space Jesus. There's nothing more volatile in someone's life than their opinion on music, especially for like a real music geek. And we've all met music guy. Strong opinions about bands you'd never heard of. Nothing kind to say about whoever is the most popular pop artist at the moment very specific reasons for why they love an album or hate an album. Music Geek is an interesting guy. Music Geek is the guy that likes to make lists. And uh, when I saw the movie, um, uh, oh, no, I went blank on the name of it now. I could picture the front of the cover. High Fidelity. Wow. The brain is failing me. When I saw High Fidelity, I about died when they started doing their lists at the record store because that's something my friends and I have done as far back as I could remember. That Top 10 songs about this, top 10 songs about that. Who are your six favorite bands that do this or that? Lists are where it's at because everything is about comparison. What's better than? What's more interesting than? What's more obscure 
what things can I pay homage to that um, prove that I'm well-versed in my little niche of music where all the normals and squares aren't. So Music Geek has a lot of interesting a lot of interesting takes. Before it was widely understood and widely shared that Nickelback is the worst band of all time. And they're the default go-to for a punchline if you're making a music joke. And I would argue that they're nowhere as embarrassing as Train, but that's a whole nother story. But long before that, that one of the hottest, most widely uh, used stand-ins uh, publicly for music geek argument gone wrong was who is your favorite frontman of Van Halen, David Lee Roth or Sammy Hagar? And David Lee Roth, Van Halen, you know, they've had their ups and downs with the fans. When they released 1984 and the song Jump, there were a lot of original fans that sort of turned their back on them. But then for others of us, it was the formative album that got us into them. And I would still argue to this day, as some of my friends do, that 1984 is one of the greatest albums ever recorded. With or without the synths. But for a long time, I was among the very vocal and uh, vitriolic majority that thought that Van Halen died when David Lee Roth left the band. We were not interested in Van Hagar. And while I'd like to think this is an opinion I formed on my own, it definitely was supported by the fact that in popular culture, the debate kept coming up. Matter of fact, later in the 90s, we had the movie The Wedding Singer, where Adam Sandler threatens, uh, I believe it's Drew Barrymore, to, or whoever his love interest is in that movie, to take off his Van Halen shirt before she curses the band and the band breaks up. And then uh, the song uh, Van Halen by the band Nerf Herder became kind of a minor hit. And a big part of that song at the end is uh, is him uh, venting about Sammy Hagar taking over the frontman position. By the time that Gary Sharon comes into the picture and Van Halen 3 is formed, and we've had a couple of boarded reunion or, or dual helming trips with David Lee Roth, the debate seemed to be settled, that the band was irreparably broken. So what's your opinion on that? What's your opinion on Van Halen? Well, apparently, the new generation doesn't have an opinion on it because they don't know who Van Halen is. Here online this week, Billie Eilish, who recorded uh, that Bad Guy song, which actually is very good, and makes a lot of very interesting music for a very young woman, was being interviewed and had no idea who Van Halen was. 
completely oblivious to their existence. This is the kind of story that I share on my Twitter account because I'm low-key obsessed with Van Halen. So to me, it's like someone not knowing who the dead milkman is. I'm going to share that story. But I understand that time has moved on and Van Halen has contributed very little to the popular culture. And unlike a band like Kiss that continually forces themselves into a public awareness, Van Halen has been pretty much content to be quiet and just sort of a where-are-they-now type band. There were people online that were upset that Billie Eilish didn't know who Van Halen was, and there were people who took up her defense. People were very motivated to share their opinions on it either way. And a lot of times it was without humor, which is perhaps the biggest sin of all when sharing your opinion about music online. But but the fact of the matter remains that it sort of exposes this whole notion that the band as a whole has had a history that possibly has ran its course. Everybody's still alive, but the band isn't there. It's much like the band Rush. Rush will not tour or record another album, or at least so we're told. The dudes are all alive still, but they've ran... They've ran their race. When I was feeling my most empowered by my strong opinions, I had very unkind things to say about Sammy Hagar and about Sammy Hagar's era of Van Halen. But then I found something strange. I hit a point in my life when music uh, against everything that I've ever thought that I knew about myself became not so important to me anymore. It just stopped being the one thing that I focused on all day long. After 30-some-odd years of obsessing and grooming my collection and having opinions and trying to discover and be well-versed in all these different styles and formats, I just found myself not caring anymore. I didn't recognize any of the names of any of the popular singers anymore. I didn't know any of the songs. I grew bored of listening to the same old stuff that was seminal. And I just kind of ceased having opinions altogether about music. It made me feel like I had lost my mind, that I had finally hit rock bottom with depression and just sort of lost focus of my true joy in life. But it was very liberating, to be honest with you. I just let it go, so to speak. And during this period of renaissance of me just not caring and giving in to just being dad, I realized that I kind of like some of the Sammy Hagar Van Halen songs. And I stepped back, listened to the albums. There's some embarrassing stuff and there's some good stuff, but I didn't mind it. 
I didn't mind it at all. So much like uh, someone who's a fan of a band that changes um, their sound a little bit after a couple albums and that hit song or that hit album you love no longer is being rehashed and retrod, and so the band has lost a step or they've sold out or whatever you want to accuse them of. And then later on you go back, you listen to their later albums and say, boy, that's a shame that I wasn't into this when they were doing this because I actually think this was a pretty good album. In retrospect, when we look at this as a group of artists just trying different things and not having to keep putting out the same album to keep everybody happy, there's actually some value to this. And that's sort of how I viewed the Sammy Hagar output with uh, Van Halen. But it almost entirely has to do with my mood. I can still joke around with the best of them as far as Van Halen being prime Van Halen pre-Sammy Hagar. That's a joke that sort of exists on its own regardless of your opinion. But but the honest truth is, is unless I'm in a terrible, terrible mood, unless I'm feeling very uh, egotistical about my taste and my knowledge of music— I like and listen to Sammy Hagar Van Halen songs. I've recently weeded my record collection down to an unbelievably small quantity of records. Like the stuff I said I could never get rid of or it wouldn't even make sense to own a record player, I've gotten rid of. It's gone. And I have one shelf, one tiny shelf of records And if it wasn't for Sun Ra, that would be half a shelf because I have multiple albums of his and they represent the biggest part of my shelf. Much like I used to have an entire shelf of just Frank Zappa and now I'm not even sure that I own a single Zappa album. But among those albums, I've kept some of my Van Halen, and I own every David Lee Roth Van Halen album except for the first one. For some reason, I have never picked up their self-titled album, which is something I'll correct eventually when I'm in a record-buying mood again. But I also own 5150. So I own a Sammy Hagar album and don't have... Van Halen's premiere album, their debut album. And I'm okay with that, and I listen to them all about equally. Even Diver Down. And I'm okay with that. So what's your opinion on this? Do you have a musical opinion that completely is based on your mood or your anger or your ego? Do you think a little too highly of your taste? Do you feel like you've earned some sort of musical clout that others have not? Do you go on the attack 
Do you corner people at parties to explain to them why Coldplay is garbage music? And what do you think about Sammy Hagar at the front of Van Halen? When it comes to having an opinion on something that's based on your mood or or your mental state at the time rather than any sort of intrinsic value, it isn't always uh, something in nerd culture that's an intellectual property. Sometimes it's a movement. Sometimes it's an attitude. Gold Kicker wouldn't exist if I didn't focus uh, or refocus my attention on nerd culture away from a collector's attitude and towards a more introspective attitude. As you know, this show has attempted to sort through the trap that is collector's culture. The idea that you have to buy and own everything that you love. And why that becomes problematic for an adult nerd. And my attitudes towards collecting definitely can change based on my attitudes towards life. But we've done a pretty good job, I think, of laying out some valid discussion of the intrinsic problems and the intrinsic joys of being a collector. So it isn't always about one particular intellectual property. Sometimes it's about an attitude. Sometimes it's about a behavior. And in nerd culture right now, there's nothing more prominent than the idea of cancel culture. Which is the idea that if someone doesn't toe the line to a particular expectation in behavior or decorum or inclusion, or moral code, that if they fail you in any way that that person is canceled, they're not spoke about, they're not even given the time of day to be argued or or written angry essays about beyond whatever your initial breakup letter is going to be online, which is inevitable, which is probably the worst part of cancel culture is is the long blog post of why they're canceling somebody. It's not unlike someone posting for two days prior to disconnecting from Facebook of the fact that they're going to disconnect from Facebook and here's why. But the notion is is that that person ceases to exist. They're no longer a viable commodity. If they're in the movie, you don't see the movie. We don't talk about them. They're not giving a chance for redemption or correction. Life just moves on without them. Now, I'm not here to tell you that cancel culture is wrong. I'm not here to say that cancel culture is healthy. But I do want to point out that my attitude, and probably yours, towards cancel culture sometimes has more to do with your own personal mood 
or personal experiences than it does about that approach in itself. Sometimes people do things that are so bad, whether it be Bill Cosby or or Michael Jackson, Chris Benoit, They get canceled, and other than some diehard fans who just can't believe anything negative about them, uh, everybody tends to agree that it's better that life move on without them. But one of the first real examples of cancel culture that I can remember is Pete Rose. Pete Rose being accused of gambling on baseball while he was an active baseball manager and he's been pretty much blackballed from baseball as a whole. Talks about uh, Hall of Fame have been thrown out the window. Not really allowed to sit at the table when it comes to discussions of the greats. The guy is still alive. And in a society where we often lament when someone passes that they weren't celebrated more while they were alive, we've basically taken taken two to three decades of celebration away from Pete Rose. He was the original cancel culture victim. And I go both ways on this. I look at someone like a Pete Rose or someone like a Michael Jackson, and I say, you know, it's they're terrible people. I can totally understand why people were upset about this. And they were terrible in different ways. Pete Rose bet on baseball and brought into question the legitimacy and the competitiveness of baseball. And Michael Jackson... it's looking like, was a predatory pedophile. But can we enjoy their works? Can we celebrate their accomplishments and separate them from the people and the various flavors of sin that they've committed? Aziz Ansari, he's a funny comedian. Um, I have to admit that. His role on Parks and Recreation added just another level of zaniness to that show that made it just absolutely wonderful. But he found himself in some strange hot water right at the forefront of the Me Too movement When someone basically wrote a a Yelp review of a date with him that was not very flattering. And he found himself canceled. Louis C.K. Canceled. And it seems like about once a week someone will be outed for being a less than stellar human being. 
and the debate begins, are they canceled, are they not canceled? Do we enjoy the music of Michael Jackson still, or is it offensive to even bother? And it almost entirely depends on my mood. Sometimes I say, yeah, people make these large mistakes in their life. There have to be consequences. And if it means not enjoying Beat It and not playing the song Beat It or celebrating the legacy of the album Thriller, so be it because that's not what's important in life. What's important in life are these lives that were potentially ruined. Confidences that were betrayed. And at other times I'm like, do we leave some room for redemption? Do we leave some room for forgiveness? Can we separate the art from the artist? (coughs) Does everybody or can anybody escape scrutiny because not everyone's on Michael Jackson's level or R. Kelly's level there's accusations that maybe it isn't the best word to use they are a little more mild a little more forgivable that people are being canceled for and it's a very bold move and it makes people feel powerful I have a voice, I have a choice, and I'm going to exercise both those things. I'm going to tell everybody my strong opinion from my position of power and act upon it. We're not going to let people who are celebrities or politicians bully us with their fame anymore. And people really rally around this whole canceling idea. But at other times, I think none of these people who are rich and famous, (coughs) powerful politicians, successful athletes, more than likely there's going to be some darkness. And our only hope is that we don't find out about it, right? That it doesn't come to light or that it's rectified or they apologize for it before they're caught. And so the cancel culture seems a little silly in retrospect because when you start comparing misdeeds It's a little uneven how we apply the canceling. So what's your idea on cancel culture? Are are you currently in a phase where you think that canceling people is appropriate? That people should have consequences for their actions? And in the long run, that that's a reasonable way to handle it? Or do you feel like you can separate art from artists? You can separate a person from their actions or you can allow room for forgiveness and and redemption and apologies? 
Where do you stand on these things? Does it change? Does it change with the case? Does it change altogether? I would point out to the New York Times uh, for you to uh, find the article they did here recently about cancel culture in our schools. They're like most things. This isn't just reserved for celebrities. It's being employed against kids. Fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, up through high school. That you can make a misstep as a seventh grader and be canceled by your peers. This is actually happening out there. Is it right? Is it wrong? Do we actively campaign against it? Or do we campaign for it actively and say, look, we need to set the standard that people's behavior has consequences? Or do we say there's room for redemption as long as there's some honest human growth after a mistake? How much of your opinion towards cancel culture comes from your own attitude or your own actions or situations that you've been put through or have caused yourself? None of those things evaluate methodically the value or or trouble with so-called cancel culture. They're your personal experiences. They're your personal opinions. And do they wander with your mood, with your own personal situation, with your own personal experiences? I'd like to hear more about that. You can write me, Carl Smith Ryder at Twitter or carlsmithwriter at gmail.com. I guess that's at carlsmithwriter on Twitter. I got the at on the wrong side of the word there. That was my hash brown hashtag moment. But write me, at carlsmithwriter on Twitter. Let me know. What do you think of these things? What do you think of the Star Wars prequels? What do you think of Van Halen? What do you think of cancel culture? How much of your opinion towards these things has to do with your current mood or your current situation and less to do with their intrinsic value? Well, that about does it for another episode of Goad Kicker. Thanks for stopping by again. Episode 31 in the can. Hoping that the new format is enjoyable. A wider breadth of subjects. A little shallower look into each individual subject, but hopefully giving you a multifaceted view of the true topic of each episode. Something to think about anyway. I hope that the Goad Kicker continues to offer something that you're not getting at other podcasts. The couple dozen, three dozen of you who listen to this show, I hope that the Goat Kicker remains 
a little bit of an island for you. If you're finding encouragement or instruction or affirmation in any way from this show, I, I think I've done my job. If, if if you're listening to it as a favor to me, I appreciate that, but maybe we need to talk about ending the goat kicker. <laughs> if that's all that anyone's doing. But I do hope it's something that enriches your life in some way. I definitely enjoy the comments when I get them. Hang tough out there, guys. It's uh, it's a rough season. Um, if you're not affected by it, there's people around you who most definitely are. It never hurts to just reach over and give someone that little side hug, if nothing else. You just don't know where people are hurting or where their stressors are coming from. One of the things I'm trying to consciously do in my life right now is change my attitude towards other people. Several episodes ago, we talked about the notion that uh, other people are just NPCs in a video game or a movie that's entirely based on you as the protagonist and how a broken, what a broken philosophy that is. And I'm really trying to overcome that. So uh, if I have a hairstylist that I've assigned to is the one that I don't like uh, and I'm going to be grumpy about it the whole time I'm sitting in the chair, but then I realize that this is a woman with real struggles in her life, and even though she talks incessantly and uh, vulgarly about her life situation to what would otherwise be a total stranger, that it's also a little bit of insight into the struggles that go on in everybody's life, that this woman has been through some hardship and she has some difficulties. And if by me keeping my mouth shut and making sure that I tip appropriately in some way can lessen the load that she has to carry as a burden, then so be it. Who cares if she's annoying? Or if there's somebody at the window at McDonald's who can't quite get your order right and you have to continually repeat it and they fumble with your debit card and they're just sort of an all-over disaster. But they're trying and they're, and they're smiling through it all. You could be the type of person who wants to call the manager or leave a negative review or fill out the survey with negative responses. Or you could be the kind of person that looks at that fast food worker who's having a rough go of what should be a normally easy job and think, the last thing in the world this person needs is my BS right now. They're obviously struggling. They're flustered. They have anxiety. No one's first choice is to be the first window cashier at 60 years old at a McDonald's. Slowing down my drive through snack by just a few minutes at most is not that big of an inconvenience. Not worth piling on someone who's probably already struggling with some pretty significant and irritating 
social and financial issues, if not emotional. And so I try to continually be mindful of this. It's exhausting, I'll be honest with you, because it's not natural, it's not normal to take yourself out of the equation and try to see what's going on around you. And I'll be honest with you, it's tough not to see everything as negative. And it's hard to train yourself not to look at what's wrong in everybody's life and try to look and see what's good and what's right going on about them. This is someone who got out of bed this morning and put on clothes that they thought they looked cute on or, or fit them well or, or, or were presentable for public appearance and did their hair and, and chose their nail color or, you know, um, chose the sneakers in their hat or their shirt that they thought would fit their social setting and they're making comments and engaging with people in a way that they're trying to present themselves as something that they want to be and that they want to be seen as. And wondering what contributions these people could make to society. Like, where are their strengths? Do they have a quick mind for numbers? Do they have a, a deep understanding of some nerd culture uh, and... Uh, appreciation for an art form that maybe others miss out on are they the world's best dungeon master and we have no idea is this someone who's able to go without a lot of personal effects a lot of personal joy a lot of sleep a lot of full bellies in order to help others to help grandkids from their own children who are suffering uh, through the traps of life and so they've had to take over the role of parent once again we just don't know always what's going on in people's lives so it can be difficult it can be difficult to not just stick with what you know which is your own life but I would encourage you to try to do that this month we're done being thankful right Thanksgiving's over. So we need a new focus. And so in the month of December, Good Kicker would ask you to focus on others. Try to be aware of their ups and downs, of their triumphs and their challenges. And if you can find any way to lessen those, even if it's just keeping your mouth shut when you normally would like to complain or to make your point, or to correct them, or to make a snide comment. If you can just keep your mouth shut to improve someone's day, that's the literal least you can do. But I know you guys, and I love you guys, and I know that you can do better than that even. And I know not a lot of you like to pat yourselves on the back, so I'll never hear about what you've done during the month of December to help improve the world around you. But I'm sure it'll be wonderful. And if you want to celebrate it, I want to hear about it. I'm not a big proponent for keeping everything to yourself. Because I think that it reinforces the culture when people realize that people around them are doing good deeds for the right reasons. And there's a good way to discuss it, and there's a bad way to discuss it, and that can be a Go Kicker episode in itself. But I personally, as your friend and as the voice that you invite into your ears irregularly, would love to hear 
changes you've made or things you've done to improve the lives of others. Or at least diminish your own role in the story of life. How have you stepped away from this NPC thinking? I would love to hear that. And if you haven't done it yet, let's try this in December. Try it with me. Try to lessen your role in life and and raise the roles of others. And try to find a way to help other people level up, as it were. Until next time, thanks for listening to Goat Kicker, and take it easy.